You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Y'all you know I mean? Dig into the real history of this country. And the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can find out more at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You'll find all the back episodes there. You'll find links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. And you'll find some links there to send me a message. First up is a story written by Margaret Kimberly. This is published at EurasiaReview.com. The current black-centered Cuban protest operation is very well orchestrated, and if black people in this country are not careful, they will end up amplifying the dictates of U.S. imperialism. The movement for black lives has an interesting and sometimes contradictory political history popularly known as Black Lives Matter, BLM, they gave birth to a now international rallying cry against black racism. They are identified with the issue of police violence so much that any protest involving black people is dubbed Black Lives Matter, whether there is any connection with that group or not. But BLM has also been problematic. Its founders have close ties to the Democratic Party and its funding apparatus. Its membership has always been more radical than its leadership, who disclosed that they raised $90 million in 2020 alone. The public accountability came about because their local chapters demanded more transparency and accountability. Sometimes, though, they get things right, as happened when BLM released a statement demanding an end to the 60-year-long sanctions imposed by the U.S. against the Cuban government and its people. The impetus for their statement came after a well-orchestrated PSYOP was carried out against the Cuban government. In early July, there was a sudden burst of Twitter posts using hashtag SOSCuba. There were more than 1,000 posts over two days, with five retweets per second. These automated tweets originated in Spain and were connected with Augustin Antonetti, a right-wing Argentinian who used the same methods of subterfuge against Evo Morales in Bolivia and President López Obrador in Mexico. A total of 2 million SOS Cuba tweets were sent in July. The online bot attack succeeded and there were protests in Cuban cities on July 11. They were immediately amplified by corporate media around the world. They were modest in size, but they were described as being spontaneous and of historic proportions. The media even posted photos of pro-government actions or those which took place outside of the country and represented them as homegrown anti-government protests. The manipulation added a new wrinkle, which makes this campaign quite insidious. Suddenly, black Cubans were made the focus of commentary. 
The right-wing Cuban exile community and their allies could not get buy-in for their old regime change argument if people like Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security, were the face of Cuban discontent. The Mayorkas family were wealthy business owners in Cuba, and when they left, ended up living in Beverly Hills. That is not a good look when a high-level propaganda operation is needed. Now a new crop of black faces have appeared on the Black News Channel, on Questlove's Instagram page, and in popular culture. The SOS Cuba tweets were directed to performing artists, some of whom, like Yotuel Romero, have recorded songs opposing the government. Romero now lives in Miami, and the title of his song, Patria y Vida, is the slogan used for 60 years by Cubans who are the staunchest opponents of the revolution. This operation is very well orchestrated, and if black people in this country are not careful, they will end up amplifying the dictates of U.S. imperialism. It is important to clarify what sanctions are and how they are used against Cuba and 38 other countries around the world. Sanctions do more than prevent U.S. individuals, banks, and businesses from doing business with the target nation. The U.S. also targets any nation that dares to defy its edict. Any country considering breaking a U.S. embargo suffers the same fate as a target. Cubans, Syrians, Venezuelans, Iranians, Nicaraguans, and others cannot conduct the international financial transactions that any nation needs in order to survive. Nor are food and medicine exempt from these restrictions. The same people who claim concern for the Cuban people are also in favor of continuing their suffering. The plight of the Cuban people cannot be separated from Washington's sanctions. Cuban scientists developed their own COVID vaccine, Soberana, which has a high rate of efficacy. But sanctions have left them without enough syringes, and they cannot provide their own people with protection from COVID. The BLM statement was clear and principled. The ongoing blockade is causing great suffering, and any critique of BLM in this instance supports U.S. imperialism, whether that is the intention of commentary or not. The only way to show solidarity with black Cubans is to expose U.S. aggressions which create misery for them and their fellow citizens. Any claim of concern for their lives which does not include an unequivocal demand for ending sanctions is dishonest and does Washington's bidding. After releasing their statement, BLM was under immediate attack from the self-declared right wing and from liberals who, in fact, have the same tendencies. The liberals are worse as they make the case for imperialism under a variety of guises. In this case, a desire to help black people. A new trope appeared overnight, which alleged that the Cuban government is more racist than the one we live under, and that black Cubans are supportive of the 60-year-old war, which has devastated their country and their lives. The latest propaganda campaign against Cuba is well orchestrated, and it must not be allowed to succeed. That is why BLM's statement must be defended. They are to be commended for stepping up at a critical moment and exposing an ongoing crime against another nation. That is the responsibility of everyone who claims to care about Cuba or about humanity anywhere in the world.
And here's an additional piece about what is going on in Cuba and what are some of the forces that are driving it. This is written by Alan McLeod and is published at mintpressnews.com. Cuba was rocked by a series of anti-government street protests earlier this week. The U.S. establishment immediately hailed the events, putting its full weight behind the protesters. Yet documents suggest that Washington might be more involved in the events than it cares to publicly divulge. As many have reported, the protests, which started on Sunday in the town of San Antonio de los Baños in the west of the island, were led and vocally supported by artists and musicians, particularly from its vibrant hip-hop scene. Quote, For those new to the issue of Cuba, the protests we are witnessing were started by artists, not politicians. This song, Patria y Vida, powerfully explains how young Cubans feel, and its release was so impactful. You will go to jail if caught playing it in Cuba, said Florida Senator Marco Rubio, referencing a track by rapper Yotuel. Both NPR and the New York Times published in-depth features about the song and how it was galvanizing the movement. Quote, the hip-hop song that's driving Cuba's unprecedented protests, ran NPR's headline. Yotuel himself led a sympathy demonstration in Miami. But what these accounts did not mention was a remarkable extent to which Cuban rappers like Yotuel have been recruited by the American government in order to sow discontent in the Caribbean nation. The latest grant publications of the National Endowment for Democracy, NED, an organization established by the Reagan administration as a front group for the CIA, show that Washington is trying to infiltrate the Cuban art scene in order to bring about regime change. Quote, a lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA, NED co-founder Alan Weinstein once told the Washington Post. And if you remember back a few months ago, there was a protest in Cuba that was very short duration, but also was um, claimed to have been and likely was by the artists and musicians there. Knowing this information in this article and connecting it back to that previous event, I feel like there's a high probability that that was an attempt to get these street protests started that didn't go anywhere then, and we'll have to wait and see if the current ones end up getting any steam at all. They seem to have died down at this point. For instance, one project entitled, quote, Empowering Cuban hip-hop artists as leaders in society states that its goal is to, quote, promote citizen participation and social change and to raise awareness about the role hip-hop artists have in strengthening democracy in the region. Another, called Promoting Freedom of Expression in Cuba Through the Arts, claims it is helping local artists on projects related to, quote, democracy, human rights, and historical memory, and to help increase awareness about the Cuban reality. This, quote, reality, as President Joe Biden himself stated this week, is that the Cuban government is an, quote, authoritarian regime that has meted out, quote, decades of repression, while leaders only, quote, 
enrich themselves. And uh, after this particular article was written, Joe Biden um, put more sanctions on Cuba and on individuals there. Another operations the NED is currently funding include enhancing Cuban civil society's ability to, quote, propose political alternatives and to, quote, transition to democracy. This is incredible when you think about um, the discourse in our mainstream media about other nations meddling in the U.S. If Russia or China, the two big potential threats to U.S. imperialism around the world, um, if any, if either of those had programs like this, and we discovered, uncovered them, and they became public, we would be outraged. And I think rightly so. So we should be outraged equally when we're the perpetrators of those things. The agency never divulges with whom it works inside Cuba, nor any more information beyond a couple of anodyne blurbs, leaving Cubans to wonder whether any group even vaguely challenging political or societal norms is secretly bankrolled by Washington. Quote, the State Department, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and the U.S. Agency for Global Media have all financed programs to support Cuban artists, journalists, bloggers, and musicians. Tracy Eaton, a journalist who runs the Cuba Money Project, told Mint Press News. It's impossible to say how many U.S. tax dollars have gone towards these programs over the years because details of many projects are kept secret, he added. A currently active grant offer from the NED's sister organization, USAID, is offering $2 million worth of funding to groups that use culture to bring about social change in Cuba. Applicants have until July 30 to ask for up to $1 million each. The announcement itself references Yotwell's song, noting, quote, Artists and musicians have taken to the streets to protest government repression, producing anthems such as Patria y Vida, which has not only brought greater global awareness to the plight of the Cuban people, but also served as a rallying cry for change on the island. The hip-hop scene in particular has long been a target for American agencies like the NED and USAID. Gaining popularity in the 1990s, local rappers had considerable impact on society, helping bring to the fore many previously under-discussed topics. The U.S. saw their biting critiques of racism as a wedge they could exploit and attempted to recruit them into their ranks, although it is far from clear how far they got in this endeavor, as few in the rap community wanted to be part of such an operation. Mint Press also spoke with Professor Sujatha Fernandez, a sociologist at the University of Sydney and an expert in Cubic musical culture. Fernandez stated, quote, For many years, under the banner of regime change, organizations like USAID have tried to infiltrate Cuban rap groups and fund co covert operations to provoke youth protests. These programs have involved a frightening level of manipulation of the Cuban artists, have put Cubans at risk, and threatened a closure of the critical spaces of artistic dialogue many worked hard to build. 
Other areas in which U.S. organizations are focused, focusing resources include sports journalism, which the NED hopes to use as a, quote, vehicle to narrate the political, social, and cultural realities of Cuban society. And gender and LGBTQ plus groups, the intersectional empire apparently seeing an opportunity to also use these issues to increase fissures in Cuban society. The House Appropriations budget, published earlier this month, also sets aside up to $20 million for, quote, democracy programs in Cuba, including those that support, quote, free enterprise and private business organizations. What is meant by democracy is made clear in the document, which states in no uncertain terms that, quote, none of the funds made available under such paragraph may be used for assistance for the government of Cuba. Thus, any mention of democracy in Cuba is all but synonymous with regime change. Capitalizing on a battered economy. And this is going to go into some detail about how the struggles in the economy in Cuba give a more fertile ground for these kind of interventionist activities, this can be repeated over and over and over again in a lot of Central and South American nations. The protest began on Sunday after a power outage left residents in San Antonio de los Baños without electricity during the summer heat. That appeared to be the spark that led to hundreds of people marching in the street. However, Cuba's economy has also taken a nosedive of late as Professor Aviva Chomsky of Salem State University, author of A History of the Cuban Revolution, told Mint Press, quote, Cuba's current economic situation is pretty dire, as is, I should point out, almost all of the third, third worlds. The U.S. embargo, or as Cubans call it, blockade, has been yet another obstacle on top of the obstacles faced by all poor countries in Cuba's fight against COVID-19. The collapse of tourism has been devastating to Cuba's economy, again, as it has been in pretty much all tourism-heavy places. However, Chomsky also noted that it could be a mistake to label all the protesters as yearning for free market shock therapy. Quote, It's interesting to note that many of the protesters are actually protesting Cuba's capitalist reforms rather than socialism. They have money to build hotels, but we have no money for food. We are starving, said one protester. That's capitalism in a nutshell, Chomsky said. And I've seen in other places, in other articles, that one of the things that the protesters, some of the protesters are bringing up, were, or is the continued, or was the continued focus of building more hotels for tourists, while the people there were struggling under an economy that was feeling the strain of COVID on top of the blockade. Eaton was skeptical of the idea that all those marching were in the pay of the U.S. Quote, Certainly much of the uprising was organic, driven by Cubans who are desperate, poor, hungry, and fed up with their government's inability to meet their basic needs, he said. Yet there were signs that at least some were not simply making a point about the lack of food in stores or medicines and pharmacies. A number of demonstrators marched underneath the American flag, and the events were immediately endorsed by the U.S. government. Quote, 
We stand with the Cuban people and their clarion call for freedom, read an official statement from the White House. Julie Chung, Biden's acting assistant secretary for U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs, added, quote, Cuba's people continue to bravely express yearning for freedom in the face of repression. We call on Cuba's government to refrain from violence, listen to their citizens' demands, respect protester and journalist rights. The Cuban people have waited long enough for Liberdad. Republicans went much further. Mayor of Miami Francis Suarez demanded that the United States intervene militarily, telling Fox News that the U.S. should put together a, quote, coalition of potential military action in Cuba. Meanwhile, Florida Congressman Anthony Sabatini called for regime change on the island, tweeting, High-ranking communist officials in Cuba should be given an ultimatum now, either immediately assist in the transition of government away from communism or be prosecuted and executed thereafter. The Corporate Media Cheering Section Corporate media were also extremely interested in the protests, devoting a great deal of column inches and airtime to the demonstrations. This is extremely unusual for such actions in Latin America. Yeah, the uh, this is going to mention it. The protests in Haiti, which were much larger, much longer in duration, much more significant, were barely in the U.S. news, in the U.S. corporate commercial media. Colombia has been living through months of general strikes against a repressive government, while there have been three years of near-daily protests in Haiti that were almost completely ignored until earlier this month when U.S.-backed President Jovenel Moise was assassinated. The effect of U.S. sanctions was constantly downplayed or not even mentioned in reporting. For example, the Washington Post editorial board came out in favor of the protesters, claiming Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel was reacting, quote, with predictable thuggishness, blaming everything on the United States in the U.S. trade embargo. Other outlets did not even mention the embargo, leaving readers with the impression that the events could only be understood as a democratic uprising against a decaying dictatorship. This is particularly pernicious because government documents explicitly state that the goal of the U.S. sanctions is to, quote, decrease monetary and real wages to bring about hunger, desperation, and the overthrow of the government, exactly the conditions brewing in Cuba right now. And this is the goal of all of our major sanctions regimes in Venezuela or against Venezuela, the blockades there, the blockades against Iran, they are made, designed to make the people suffer to the extent that the people feel there's little option than to oppose their sitting government. Because we put forth the notion that It is your government. The reason that the U.S. is blockading your nation is the actions of your government. And the underlying notion there of if you can rise up and you can replace your government with one that we can work with, quote unquote, we can work with, which ultimately just means corporate and business friendly, 
that international corporations can come and suck the life out of your economy, what life there is is to suck out um, that we haven't destroyed already, that is the goal of these sanctions, of these blockades. Professor Chomsky noted, quote, The U.S. embargo blockade is one, not the only, cause of Cuba's economic crisis. The U.S. has overtly and continuously said that the goal of the embargo is to destroy Cuba's economy so that the government will collapse. So it's not just reasonable, it's obvious that the U.S. has some kind of hand in this. Chomsky also took issue with the media's explanation of events, stating, quote, Look at the coverage of Black Lives Matter or Occupy Wall Street protests in this country. One thing that we see consistently is that when people protest in capitalist countries, the media never explains the problems they are protesting as caused by capitalism. When people protest in communist or socialist countries, the media attributes the problems to communism or socialism. Media were at pains to emphasize how large and widespread the anti-government demonstrations were, insisting that the pro-government counter-demonstrations were smaller in number, despite images from the protests suggesting that the opposite might be true. As Reuters reported, quote, Thousands took to the streets in various parts of Havana on Sunday, including the historic center, drowning out groups of government supporters waving the Cuban flag and chanting Fidel. If this were the case, it is odd indeed that so many outlets used images of pro-government movements to illustrate the supposed size and scope of the anti-governmental action. The Guardian, Fox News, Financial Times, NBC, and Yahoo News all falsely claimed a picture of a large socialist gathering was, in fact, an anti-government demo. The large red and black banners emblazoned with the words 26 Julio, the name of Fidel Castro's political party, should have been a dead giveaway to any edi editors or fact-checkers. Meanwhile, CNN and National Geographic illustrated articles on the protests in Cuba with images of gatherings in Miami, gatherings that looked far better attended than any similar ones 90 miles to the south. And in fact, in the Fox News images of the demonstrations, they blurred out signs because those signs were clearly supportive of the Cuban government. Social media meltdown. Social media also played a pivotal role in turning what was localized protest into a nationwide event. NBC's director of Latin America, Mary Murray, noted that it was only when live streams of the events were picked up and signal boosted by the expat community in Miami that it, quote, started to catch fire something that suggests the growth of the movement was partly artificial. After the governments blocked the internet, the protests died down. The hashtag SOSCuba trended for over a day. There are currently over 120,000 photos on Instagram using the hashtag, but as Arnold August, the writer of a host of books on Cuba and Cuban-American relations, told Mint Press, much of the attention the protest was getting was a result of inauthentic activity. Love the, love the euphemistic speak. Inauthentic activity. It means it's, it's hired and paid for, quote-unquote, fake news. But it's not the fake news that they want you to think. It's not the 
actual news that they want to call fake. It's the real fake news. Quote, the latest attempt of regime change also has its roots in Spain. Historically, the former colonizer of Cuba plays its role in all major attempts of regime change, not only for Cuba, but also, for example, in Venezuela. The July operation made intensive use of robots, algorithms, and accounts recently created for the occasion. August noted that the first account using the SOS Cuba on Twitter was actually located in Spain, as Margaret Kimberly pointed out in the previous article. This account posted nearly 1,300 tweets on July 11. The hashtag was also buoyed by hundreds of accounts tweeting the exact same phrases in Spanish, replete with the same small typos. One common message read, translated from Spanish, Cuba is going through the greatest humanitarian crisis since the start of the pandemic. Anyone who posts the hashtag SOSCuba would help us a lot. Everyone who sees this should help with the hashtag. Another text reading, We Cubans don't want the end of the embargo. If that means the regime and dictatorship stays, we want them gone. No more communism. Was so overused that it became a meme in itself, with social media users parodying it. Posting the text alongside pictures of demonstration beside the Eiffel Tower, crowds at Disneyland, or pictures of Trump's inauguration. Spanish journalist Julian Macias Tovar also cataloged the suspicious number of brand new accounts using the hashtag. Much of the operation was so crude that it could not have failed to be discovered, and many of the accounts, including the first user of the SOS Cuba hashtag, have now been suspended for inauthentic behavior. Yet Twitter itself still chose to put the protests at the top of its What's Happening for over 24 hours, meaning that every user would be notified, a decision that further amplified the astroturfed movement. Here is the... A, a, a premium example of the major problems with social media amplification. Because what they choose to amplify, and it's a choice, you know, oh, it's built into the algorithm. It's a choice. The algorithms are built for reasons to do specific things. And this, it's not, it's not a, a byproduct. It's not a, 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 a bad aftertaste. It is the goal of the algorithm to amplify, to amplify things that will get more attention and keep the user's attention longer. And it's one of the major problems with why many social media sites are destructive to discourse. Twitter leadership has long displayed open hostility towards the Cuban government, in 2019, it took coordinated action to suspend virtually every Cuban state media account, as well as those belonging to the Communist Party. This was part of a wider trend of deleting or banning accounts favorable to governments the U.S. Department considers enemies, including Venezuela, China, and Russia. In 2010, USAID secretly created a Cuban social media app called Zunzueno, Zunzuneo, Zunzuneo, often described as Cuba's Twitter. At its peak, it had 40,000 Cuban users, a very large number for that time, on the famously internet-sparse island. 
none of these users were aware that the app had been secretly designed and marketed to them by the U.S. government. Talk about interfering in other nations. The point was to create a great service that would slowly start to feed Cubans regime change propaganda and direct them to protest and smart mobs aimed at triggering a color-style revolution. In an effort to hide its ownership of the project, the U.S. government held a secret meeting with Twitter founder Jack Dorsey, aimed at getting him to invest in the project. It is unclear to what extent, if any, Dorsey helped, as he has declined to speak on the matter. This is not the only anti-government app the U.S. has funded in Cuba. Yet considering both what has happened this week and the increasingly close ties between Silicon Valley and the national security state, it is possible the U.S. government considers further cloak-and-dagger apps unnecessary. Twitter already acts as an instrument for regime change. Cuba in perennial crosshairs By the end of the 19th century, the United States had effectively conquered its entire contiguous landmass. The frontier was declared closed in 1890. Almost immediately, it began to look for opportunities to expand westwards into the Pacific, to Hawaii, the Philippines, and Guam. It also began to look southwards. In 1898, the U.S. intervened in the Cuban independence war against Spain, using the mysterious sinking of the USS Maine as a pretext to invade and occupy Cuba. The U.S. operated Cuba as a client state for decades until the Batista regime was overthrown in the 1959 revolution that brought Fidel Castro to power. The U.S. launched a botched invasion of the island in 1961, the Bay of Pigs event driving Castro closer to the Soviet Union, laying the groundwork for the Cuban Missile Crisis the following year. The U.S. reportedly attempted to kill Castro hundreds of times, all without any luck. It did, however, carry out a bitter and protracted terroristic war against Cuba and its infrastructure, including using biological weapons against the island. Along with this came a long-standing economic war, the 60-year U.S. blockade of the island that throttled its development. In addition to this, it has attempted to bombard the Caribbean nation with anti-communist propaganda. TV Marty, a Florida-based media TV network, has cost the U.S. taxpayer well over half a billion dollars since its creation in 1990, despite the fact that the Cuban government successfully jams the signal, meaning virtually nobody watches its content. After the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, Cuba was left without its main trading partner, to which it has ge had geared its economy. Without a guaranteed buyer for its sugar and without subsidized Russian oil imports, the economy crashed. Sensing blood, the U.S. intensified the sanctions. Yet Cuba pulled through the grim time collectively known as a, quote, special period. After a wave of left-wing anti-imperialist governments came to power across Latin America in the 2000s, the Obama administration was forced to move towards normalizing diplomatic relations with the island. However, once in office, President Donald Trump reversed these actions, intensifying the blockade and halting vital remittances from Cuban Americans to the island. Trump advisor John Bolton labeled Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua a, quote, troika of tyranny, 
a clear reference to George Bush's Axis of Evil speech, implying that these three nations could expect military action against them soon. In its last days, the Trump administration also declared Cuba a state sponsor of terrorism. While Biden had intimated that he might turn the U.S.-Cuba policy back to the Obama days, he has so far done little to move away from the Trump line. His unequivocal endorsement of this week's actions is the latest example of this. Despite monumental worldwide media coverage, encouragement, and legitimation from world leaders, including the President of the United States himself, the recent action petered out after barely 24 hours. In most cases, counter-protests effectively diluted the protests without the need for repressive forces to be deployed. And in a, in a report I just read today, um, because there are various lists of the number of people arrested protesting the government in Cuba, 60 individuals in Cuba have been charged and brought through the courts due to their illegal activities that happened during those protests. There, there may be more still waiting trial, but I think most of what have been claimed to have been hundreds of people detained, anywhere from 100 to 600 I've seen in, in different lists, um, most of them likely were later let go, which is precisely what happens in the U.S. Ask any member of Black Lives Matter in any city that had arrests during protests or anybody that pays fairly close attention to it. And hundreds of arrests in a protest are not unusual in the United States in even a single city. The U.S. government can cause economic misery for the Cuban people, but it cannot, it appears, convince them to overthrow their government. Quote, The current events in Cuba constitute in reality the USS Maine of 2021, August said. If this really was an attempted color revolution, as August is implying, was not a very successful one, amounting to little more than a bay of tweets. So I think that's what's what's happening in Cuba is very, very illustrative of US imperialism and how it is enacted in the 21st century. It's not always invasions with armies, though it sometimes is. Um, it is handled much more covertly, but, but out in the open. Voice of America started as a propaganda tool of the U.S. government. It still is, despite its more semi-legitimized reporting and journalism that it does take on these days. It still is an arm of... American propaganda. I fully believe that people everywhere, including Cuba, have the right to oppose their government, to speak out against it, to voice their opinions 
when they think that your government is doing wrong or is being harmful or is not paying attention to the needs of the people. The, the extent to which any government, including Cuba, oppresses that, it is a bad thing and should be opposed. But it shouldn't only be opposed in those countries whom the United States government has chosen as the targets, as the, the uh, bullies, as the quote-unquote dictatorships out there, whether or not they have elections for their government, um, it should be opposed everywhere, including in the United States. We think we are taught heavily through our entire education in the educational system, the public educational system and the private educational system in the U.S. We are taught that we are different. We are better. We don't, those things don't happen here. We are taught lies. We are taught propaganda. Those things happen here as they do in many, many places in the world. It is not just the most oppressive, dictatorial, violent military governments like the one that just once again uh, took over Myanmar in a coup that oppressed the people and oppose progress. It is also the democracies, also the capitalist nations, the ones that, that we are taught over and over repeatedly through our educational system, through our media system, and through socialization with other citizens and residents that the, those countries, democracies, capitalist countries are not like that. To hell, they're not like that. Here is Kali Holloway with a piece in thenation.com. Our racial reckoning is turning out to be a white lie. With inevitable regularity, racial injustice and violence lead to moments of national conflict when even white Americans can no longer ignore the issue. And just as inevitably, instead of addressing this country's pervasive racism and anti-blackness, white Americans locate the problem somewhere within the black people themselves. We're in yet another of those moments, as last summer's promised, quote, racial reckoning turns out to be a white lie. Black demands for full citizenship and equality are being treated as entitlement. Calls for white racial accountability redefined as white persecution and anti-racism falsely construed as anti-whiteness. To re-establish unchallenged white dominance, a movement of white resistance or anti-anti-racism is working tirelessly to blot out what it sees as a problematic presence. Purging black folks from democracy by stripping voter rights, erasing black struggle from history, and by banning the teaching of slavery and its legacy, and prohibiting protest that threatens the white supremacist status quo. These are the responses. These are the responses in the United States to the protests. These are precisely the things that our government consistently attacks other governments for. 
when the people protest in the street. What is the response? The response is to ban protests. Dozens of states have either passed or are considering in their legislatures various laws limiting the rights of protesters in the United States. What else happens? Dozens of states, all right, maybe not dozens, many states are proposing serious limitations on voting for those communities that were largely involved and supportive of those protests. What happens anytime a disadvantaged community starts to get any traction, any voice, any progress potentially made for them, dozens of states impose new draconian laws to limit their freedom. Ask any trans person that is watching the news or any supporter of the trans community that's watching watching the news where there's 30 plus bills out there restricting the rights of trans folks for getting medical care they need for participating in society in the way that fulfills them as a human being such as in sports these are the reactions that come in a quote-unquote democratic, quote-unquote capitalist country that's supposed to be the leader and the shining example of the world, so we were taught. We can be shocked by the reaction, but certainly should not be surprised. This nation has a long history of counterbalancing any move towards black liberation with the insistence that black existence is better wholly removed or more tightly controlled. In an 1814 missive addressing the prospect of African-American emancipation, Thomas Jefferson advocated for black expatriation to another country, contending that without the yoke of slavery around their necks, African-Americans were, quote, pests in society. Founding fathers. Remember being taught about the founding fathers? That quote wasn't in the textbook I saw. Abraham Lincoln, even as he drafted the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862, told a delegation of black leaders invited to the White House that, quote, your race suffer very greatly by living among us, while ours suffer from your presence and place the blame for quote white men cutting one another's throats on black folks requesting equality claiming quote but for your race among us there could not be war lincoln suggested the solution was for black people to quote sacrifice something of your present comfort by picking up stakes and relocating abroad an idea the president would support until days before his assassination. Many would assert that Jefferson and Lincoln were just white men of their time. But even as the times have changed, this pervasive white American attitude has not. The Republican Party has gone all in on attacking critical race theory, labeling it 
a, quote, dangerous ideology, anti-American, and a blatant attempt to change the foundation principles, the foundational principles of our nation. Despite the fact that no GOP lawmaker seems to know what CRT is. Conservative legislatures are seeking to ban the teaching of structural racism in 22 states, though CRT itself is already not being taught outside of graduate and law schools. The party has taken a similar approach to the 1619 Project, introducing federal bills to defund the teaching of the curriculum to students in grades K-12. through Under the guise of anti-riot measures, and to push the idea that protest for black lives is inherently violent, over 70 bills that criminalize protests have been proposed around the country, including multiple hit-and-kill laws that would effectively make it legal to run over protesters with a car. Some of this is cynical political calculation. Conservative propagandist Christopher Rufo admitted in March that his, quote, goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. But that strategy works only because it's easy to stoke white fears of status loss in the face of even the most minor black progress an outlook that views black appeals for equality as kind of racial overreach. The more black liberation movements are viewed by conservatives as potentially successful, the more vigorous the reactionary effort to shut them down, to demean them as a threat to the country, and more importantly, white feelings. Note how many of the right-wingers opposing CRT claim it makes children feel bad. It's not us It's you, in other words. In 1961, as white parents raged against integration, James Baldwin addressed what motivated their anger. Quote, They do not really know what it is they are afraid of, but they know they are afraid of something. And they are so frightened that they are nearly out of their minds. We would never, never allow Negroes to starve, to grow bitter, and to die in ghettos all over the country if we were not driven by some nameless fear that has nothing to do with Negroes. And here we are again. I noted last September that white support for Black Lives Matter, which surged immediately after George Floyd's murder, had already fallen precipitously less than two months later. A recent New York Times investigation finds that a year later, quote, Republicans and white people have actually become less supportive of Black Lives Matter than they were before the death of George Floyd, a trend that seems unlikely to reverse anytime soon. In tandem with that drop-off in support, there's been a rise in, quote, tough-on-crime sentiment, a reaction to the defund the police messaging that gained traction last summer. Never mind that crime is down overall, and that the 2020 increases in homicides occurred not only in cities that trimmed police funds, always by tiny amounts that fall far from actual defunding, but also in those that made no cuts to police budgets or poured yet more money into law enforcement. 
Jennifer Chuddy, an assistant professor of political science at Wellesley College, who contributed to the Times study, expressed skepticism last year that white support for BLM would hold. Recently noting that white support for black civil rights correlates with racial sympathy, Chuddy said that, quote, less than 20% of white people feel sympathy towards every flavor of black suffering, from microaggression to physical altercations akin to what George Floyd faced. And thus, for an awful lot of white Americans, the complications of racism would be solved if black people would stop complaining about it. If only we'd all just go along to get along, things would feel a lot better. Nearly 120 years ago, in The Souls of Black Folk, W.E.B. Dubois addressed the query that is almost never overtly posed to black folks, but is always embedded in the national understanding of race. How does it feel to be a problem? It remains the wrong question. Because of our indoctrination as citizens in the United States of America, we have a, a, a massive ability to ignore our history because we weren't taught it, because we were taught false history, because we were taught to love our country in a nationalist way that downplayed or ignored the multiple genocides that were committed in the creation and growth of our nation and not only not only to bury those within ourselves but to build within each of us the capacity and the desire to disallow others from sharing the truth to attack them to oppose them to sideline and overwhelm them by piling on more of our our false history and our false bravado and our nationalism that has been embedded in us here is james a bryant jr with a piece published in indiancountrytoday.com as teachers we hope our students parents will care passionately about and be involved in their children's education. This, however, was different. This was dangerous and violent and irrational. The faces were horrifying, blood-engorged, with the bulging, unseeing eyes of madness, spittle flying from the gaped mouths, twisted with purple rage. It looked more Dante than Danville, but was, in fact, Virginia. Incited by a well-coordinated campaign from the American right, these parents had come to their local school board meeting inspired to take whatever steps were necessary to protect their children from the latest boogeyman, critical race theory, CRT. Eventually, one man was arrested, a second 
was held by authorities, and the board was forced to clear the meeting of all spectators. In addition to all this bad behavior, there was one massive problem with the angry gathering. Critical race theory is not being taught in Virginia's K-12 schools. Unfortunately, Virginia is hardly the only state suffering from this panic over critical race theory, spurred on by Fox, quote, news, and a myriad of right-wing influence groups like the American Legislative Exchange Council. States across America have begun proposing and passing legislation to curb what kinds of information can and cannot be taught in America's history classes. Three of the states that were carved out of land from the Cherokee Nation are among those making such proposals. Tennessee legislators want to restrict what kind of information students can learn. North Carolina has HB 324, which would, quote, prohibit teachers from promoting concepts that suggest America is racist or that people are inherently racist or sexist. In Georgia, State Representative Brad Thomas told his constituents, quote, I'm proud to tell you we've started writing that critical race theory bill and acknowledge borrowing language from Tennessee's bill. Thomas represents apparently without irony Cherokee County. The fact that the North Carolina bill, quote, would, quote, prohibit teachers from promoting concepts that suggest America is racist or that people are inherently racist or sexist. What is... Nothing, nothing except people are racist and sexist. Cats aren't racist and sexist. Birds aren't racist and sexist. The trees outside aren't racist and sexist. Only people... are racist and sexist. So this bill essentially prohibits teaching anything about the concept of racism or sexism. They're there by just denying they exist, not allowing them to exist as part of discussions in schools, stripping out the educational part of the educational system. Back to the piece. Which brings me to my concern. What do all these bills mean for the teaching and studying of Native American history? It must be said from the outset, of course, that American Indian history is not an unremitting litany of loss and tragedy. There is the genius of Sequoia, the courage of Louis Sokalexis, the heroism of Ira Hayes. It is inevitable, though, that a people victimized by colonialism will have stories of betrayal and that the antagonists of those stories will, in fact, be the colonizers. North Carolina's bill bars educators from teaching that, quote, the United States was created by members of a particular race or sex for the purpose of oppressing members of another race or sex. Fair enough. Perhaps the United States was not created, quote, for the purpose of oppressing another race. 
but there can be no reasonable argument against the idea that the United States was created through the oppression of other races, first through the theft of the lands and the enslavement of the continent's indigenous peoples, and second through the enslavement of the Africans. I doubt North Carolina's legislators would note or honor the difference, though, and that has me re-examining my own classes. I teach three courses on the history of the Cherokee Nation and the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians to students at Cherokee High School on the Kala Boundary in North Carolina. And while the stories of Charles George, Osley, Sanuk, and others provide inspiration and instill pride, it is simply impossible to discuss or teach Cherokee history without touching on the, quote, divisive concepts, such as racism and sexism, that these states are attempting to stifle. If I am not allowed to discuss sexism, how can I teach my students about the centuries-long war against their matrilineal culture? Both the Cherokee Nation and the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians have elected female heads of state, Wilma Mankiller and Joyce Dugan, respectively, while America has not. How do I discuss this fact without reference to sexism? How can I teach my students about their ancestors who returned home from making the rest of the world quote-unquote safe for democracy, only to be denied the right to vote by county poll workers in Bryson City if I cannot discuss racism? Genocide seems like a reasonably divisive topic so I can only assume that I am not allowed to discuss removal and the thousands of Cherokee deaths in the 1830s, or the Indian Health Service's systematic sterilization of, quote, perhaps 25% of Native American women of childbearing age in the 1970s and 1980s. If I am no longer allowed to confront uncomfortable truths with my students, how will we discuss the Cherokee Training School, a boarding school that once existed on the boundary or the nearly forgotten mass grave of children who were sent there and died in the 1918 flu epidemic. If neither racism nor sexism can be discussed, how do we talk about the tragic crisis in our communities of missing and murdered indigenous women? In order to assure the comfort of white children, must I dishonor the memory of native children? Mark Robinson certainly thinks so. Though Robinson was only elected to the office of Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina, he has named himself Grand Inquisitor as well. To make certain that no North Carolina student is made even slightly uncomfortable by historical fact, Robinson recently launched his Facts Task Force. Fairness, accountability, in the classroom, for teachers and students. Robinson created a website for students, parents, or presumably even other educators to report teachers who stray into the uncomfortable topics of racism, sexism, classism, or any other topic that does not sing the praises of American exceptionalism. Did the lesson on the trail upset a white student? Turn the teacher in. Did the discussion of Doublehead and his battle against the theft of his ancestral homeland cause a white child to feel guilty? The teacher can be ratted out to Lieutenant Governor Torquemada. 
Do the words of early missionary educators such as John Gambled and Cyrus Kingsbury embarrass North Carolina's white students? Facts will be there to ensure those words are, like the broken bodies of the Cherokee children buried in the Brainerd or Spring Place Mission cemeteries, forever buried. Recent studies show that America's teachers already feel woefully unprepared to teach history, both the positive and the negative stories, with only one in five, quote, feeling very well prepared to support students' civic learning. Add to this the threats from those who, like Mark Robinson, are determined to hide any and all of this nation's sins, and you have a perfect storm where the history of Native Americans and of Indian country vanishes like an Orwellian fantasy. The American Indian College Fund reminds us of the devastation this can bring when noting, quote, Invisibility is, in essence, the modern form of racism used against Native Americans. It is this invisibility that leads to a college access and completion crisis among Native American students. Educators, particularly those working in Indian country, must stand fast against this tide of censorship and creeping fascism. Oklahoma's Republican Governor Kevin Stitt had the clueless audacity to sign a bill banning, quote, teaching certain concepts of race and racism. While just 90 minutes down the road in Tulsa, researchers searched for the bodies of slaughtered black Oklahomans from the Tulsa race massacre. Oklahoma educators have noted the chilling effect the bill has already had for higher education in the state. For the Cherokee, as well as other Native nations within the state's border. The idea of teaching Oklahoma history without reference to race, racism, or colonialism is laughable. Oklahoma only exists due to racism. If not for racism and colonialism, there would be no Governor Stitt at all. Just the combined leadership of the principal chiefs of the myriad indigenous nations located in Indian Territory. Hiding historical trauma will not heal it. It will only deepen and prolong its impact. On my desk sits a small cake of lye soap. It is there to serve as a daily reminder of my sacred responsibilities and moral obligations as a teacher. It is there because of the story my grandfather, Russell D. Norris, told me about the time in third grade in Cramerton, North Carolina, when his teacher washed his mouth out with lye because he had spoken a single word of his Cherokee language while in class. If, next school year, one of my students asks me about the soap, may I tell her the story? If I do, will I be reported, turned in to my state government? Will I lose my job for sharing my grandpa's story? Will Lieutenant Governor Charrington be alerted to my transgression? It doesn't matter, of course. I will teach the truth. I will teach Cherokee history, the good, the bad, and the ugly, come what may. I will do this because my voice is all I have in the fight to make certain that no Cherokee student will ever again face the abuse my grandfather faced. Teachers must not be silenced, and teachers in Indian country must demand the right to teach the absolute and unvarnished facts about the relationship between the United States and the indigenous nations trapped within her borders. 
Native American educators and educators of Native American students must let our governments know that if they come for one, they must come for all. We must make our motto the words attributed to Dragging Canoe. We must, quote, run all risks and incur all consequences rather than submit. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. If you want to check out back episodes, you can go to youcantbeneutral.com. You can also follow on Twitter at YCBneutral. You can also listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. And now, a moment of Zen. I came across a book of... Uh, recently called The Art and Politics of College Teaching. Any of you ever hear of it? No. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised. But uh, it's a kind of uh, Machiavellian uh, guide to people who want to teach in college. Uh, and uh, it has sort of organized in the form of, of concerns. And uh, concern number nine, I skipped the first eight for your benefit. Can, can, can I involve myself in causes, crusades, and political activism as a professor? Answer, the institution of higher education may not look kindly upon such activities. <laughs> so, Be wary of introducing your political conclusions or social thought into classroom situations. Be on guard not to take sides if it is possible to avoid it at all. Play dumb. <laughs> That's interesting. Until you get your PhD, the advice is play smart. And then after you get your PhD, play dumb. Uh, be somewhat submissive to the senior faculty. The only thing I, about that I didn't understand was the word somewhat. I thought that took courage. <laughs> yeah. If I had had that book available to me when I started my teaching career, I mean, who knows what I might have become? <laughs> yeah. A dean, maybe. 